This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. If you're looking for high-quality videos on closure, PurelyFunctional.tv has you covered. Eric Normand walks you through topics including an intro to closure to more in-depth topics such as core.async and includes a lot of exercises along the way. The videos are available as downloads allowing you to watch offline at your convenience and previews of the videos are available on the site. To get your copy of the videos, go to http colon purelyfunctional.tv slash geekery and use coupon code geek, G-E-E-K, to get a 25% discount on everything. And make sure to thank Eric Normand and purelyfunctional.tv for being a sponsor. Proctor here with a couple of quick announcements before we get into this episode. First, I want to let everyone know that CodeMesh is coming up. CodeMesh London is the European Conference for Alternative Technologies and Programming Languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November, with the Day of Tutorials on the 2nd of November. CodeMesh brings together a wide range of alternative technologies and programming languages and the wonderful people who use them to solve real-world problems in the software industry. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including creator of the quicksort algorithm, Sir Tony Horry, co-designer of Haskell, John Hughes, co-inventors of Erlang, Joe Armstrong and Robert Verding, creator of F-Sharp, Don Syme, co-inventor of Julia, Stefan Karpinski, designer of Elm, Evan Zablicki, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. And make sure to use code FNGeekery10 for a discount on the two days of conference. Second, I want everyone to know about CatsCon 15 in Dublin, Ireland on the 12th of September, 2015. CatsCon 15 is a one-day conference whose main goal is for people to have a great time and learn about functional programming. With three tracks of international and local expert speakers sharing their passion for programming, including a selection of top-quality workshops, CatsCon 15 looks like it will deliver. Co-organized by past guest Andrea Mignorski, it is a conference that won't blow your budget. And to top it off, when you register, you can get a special two-day ticket that includes a ticket to the Dublin Erling Factory Light the day before. I'm here with Chakra at LambdaConf, and we just kind of wrapped up day two, so you want to tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you came into LambdaConf? Sure. I've been a professional customer for four years, and about six months ago I decided to do a Ruby boot camp. At the same time, I'd also attended a Closure Bridge workshop and thought that it was really fun. It made a lot of sense to me. Ruby wasn't making a lot of sense to me, so as soon as I got out, I thought, okay, I want to pivot now. So programming became a lot easier once I started applying a functional approach. I started using a library called Ramda, and then studying Haskell and getting back to Closure. I wanted to, you know, skip OO programming and find the fast track to functional programming as a junior developer. So my partner was already attending LambdaConf, and so I just looked up every single person that was speaking, looked for people that were in the Bay Area. But anyway, I was like, well, I'll just try John. I didn't even know he was the organizer of the conference. <laughs> and so we had a chat about how to break into functional programming, and he invited me to come. Okay. So you're not just new to functional programming, you're new to programming yeah, in general. New. You've got an interesting perspective of no real preconcepts of what programming might look like. So you're able to come at this with a completely fresh perspective. Pretty fresh. Sometimes I still think, okay, so I need a for loop, and I'm like, no, no! 
what here at the conference did you notice that kind of really caught your attention from all the different tracks that you managed to go or just any hallway tracks or anything that you found? Yeah, well, first, the opening talk by Sharon Steed was really inspiring, and it was all about coming to engineering and communication from a place of fear and how that limits your ability to connect with people and to create interesting, meaningful products because we're not going to take risks. I love the Haskell track. I did a couple that were sort of intro to Haskell or programming in math, which was really sort of review of intro to Haskell. I took uh, Haskell for the web. That was really cool to, you know, go from learn you a Haskell to, okay, I can actually make something go. So the big question mark is now lots of smaller question marks. And the Datomic closure and closure script is also really appealing because I come from a, you know, my small background is full stack. There's so many interesting things. I thought a little bit about what is a virtual jar. So it's probably great to sort of break apart what is a file system now before really knowing that much about it. Um, what else? Yeah, so I did mostly Clojure, Haskell, and then I jumped into Scala Z. So that was lovely, bringing in some of the Haskell goodness into Scala, which is also new for me. <laughs> so is there anything coming in that you're seeing that we could do as a community that's better for making things more approachable? Was there anything that you saw here that was kind of like, that's great, but like, was there enough intro level stuff for you that didn't, because I know there were plenty of advanced talks looking at that schedule as well, where there was some yeah. really strong type theory conversations, hmm. but which is probably over my head at this point on some of that stuff too, <laughs> with not really digging into Haskell too much yet, but is there anything that you found that you want to call out either special, like super special that was especially great outside of just the talks or technologies? Or vice versa, that? Well, John is super great and very inviting and supportive. All of the organizers were really energetic and answered a lot of questions. I felt like every person that I met that I engaged with was really open and friendly, which is not always what you find at meetups or conferences. So, you know, as a female junior developer, I felt really comfortable. And I know that that was stress to have an inclusive environment whether it's like gender identity or whatever. So I really love that, to know that other people that I care about would also be safe here. I did hear a little bit of like confusion and dissension in the racket to type racket class. And I think it was just because there had been some schedule shifts because people were sick. And so people were taking a track that they hadn't originally intended and weren't well prepared for it, like in terms of having technology downloaded, but also being beginners, there was some like desire to sort of have the speaker re sort of restructure their talk to make it apply more to them. So I hope that that speaker will not be too hurt by that. And maybe an install fest, because I've done RailsBridge and ClojureBridge, and the install fest is like the day before the conference starts for yeah. three hours or something, you can get support. And like, while a lot of us are already developers and know how to install stuff, you still get like weird bugs if it's not your domain that you won't necessarily know how to deal with quickly. You could spend like four hours getting set up. That's a good point because I gave an intro to Erlang workshop and I tried to make it as stress-free as possible with the Erlang installer, but then I also, there's a tool called Rebar 3. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't think about was someone's like, does this work on Windows? And I was like, 
Probably not unless you've got the right setup. And let me, thanks for pointing that out. And I was like, well, we're really not using Rebar 3 too much at this point. But it was more just to have it if we needed it. But yeah, I, that's a that's a good point. It's just to help reinforce the fact that if you're coming in, it's pre-set up or something to make sure that everybody's set up before you're giving your talk if they need it. Or call those requirements out explicitly if you're needing that stuff. So Yeah. It was a little bit difficult to figure that out because like, there was the spreadsheet that had the tracks that were happening at the different times, but it didn't have the name of the speaker attached. Yeah. And then the repository for the whole conference had the speaker's sort of whatever their GitHub name is, but not their name. And so you had to sort of like do a bit of hunting okay. to find the right repository for the class. You could figure out if you have the right material. So yeah. that's like a small detail. Is there anything else you want to let people know about or before we let you go? Um, it was absolutely inspiring and mind-bending, and I'm totally mentally exhausted and, yeah, excited about learning even more. Anything you're looking forward to go back and start playing with after spending this day here or two um, couple days here? Yeah, that's really hard to choose because I'll be starting a Scala internship, like, in a week. And, like, when do you choose between building a full-stack closure app and a Haskell app and, like, trying a new language? So all of them, and I think that's a problem everybody hits, no matter what, no matter what level they are at. It's I like there's so that. many, yeah. there's so many tools out there. There's so much to learn. How do I, how do I find out all about everything? Yeah, I'm probably most likely to stick with Haskell. So Haskell is going to be your thing of choice that you're going to continue to play with. Yeah. In, in addition to going and doing your Scala for for work. Yeah. Although, like, the, it's easier to learn Clojure because the Clojure community is more connected, at least in the Bay Area, okay. and very friendly. you got to go where people will help you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck, and Thank it was you. great meeting you at the conference and talking to you. Yeah. Next year. Yeah. I'm here with Brian Trentwine at the end of the second day of LambdaConf. A little bit of a half day tomorrow for an unconference, but we just got out, and you had one of the last presentations of the day as well on... Uh, Available slash fault tolerant systems. Mm -hmm. So you want to give everybody a little bit of overview about your talk and any other words of advice on that that you didn't manage to sneak in that you think about later? Yeah, I actually feel pretty satisfied about everything I covered, but what I covered was how you would approach building a fault tolerant system and what that means. So this is a functional programming conference and the sort of main thesis of the talk is that functional programming is the barest minimum that you, or functional programming techniques rather, you know, ahead of time compilation guarantees, separation of I.O., things like that that you would associate with functional programming is the smallest thing that you need to do to achieve fault tolerance in a large scale system. You go from functional programming to sort of combining these functionally programmed systems across an unreliable network or across an unreliable embedded message bus depending on the domain. And then all of that has to fit inside of a human organization that has not necessarily technical excellence at mind. So just how you approach doing that and sort of tricks of the trade, I suppose. There seemed to be a lot of lessons. There were some other languages I could identify, but a lot of lessons with Erlang, which I know you're involved with. Yeah. So what other inspirations did you draw from when you're looking at that besides just some of the database distributed systems and the fallacies? Because I know you had the, the eight fallacies of distributed systems right. as well. So where were some of the other things you kind of realized and learned some of those lessons from as you pulled together those different components. Yeah, so I'm actually a failed logician. So I started out as a mathematician and 
I wanted to work with things that could actually catch fire rather than ideas. So I, I switched into computer science, but the early training and formal methods has been hugely influential. Real-time embedded systems are also sort of a hallmark of the information that I look for, that I read. Systems theory, which is a little bit divorced from any particular machine and more about the human organization surrounding some mechanism. In the talk, for instance, I reference the Deepwater Horizon event report, which sort of goes into, you know, not just how did the machine itself fail, but why did it get to a state where it could fail? Obviously, Erlang is a huge influence. It's one of the, the languages that I work in primarily, and its ideas of how you would structure a system are really heavily influenced by the early ideas of how you would structure the internet. So if you look at an Erlang system, it's really just a microcosm of the internet, or more correctly, ARPANET uh, as a whole. I suppose that's it. Like I can't think of any other influences, but yeah, re real-time embedded systems and Erlang and formal logic. Sounds good. More just, I was thinking just because I knew about the Erlang kind of stuff, and that community has a crossover with distributed systems, which isn't necessarily Erlang related. Right. When you have things like databases and some other stuff, just because there's lessons to be learned there as well. But real-time systems seems like it's a good, another good reference to go think about and find the lessons learned from as well, because in a lot of cases we deal with very, very soft real-time. Right. System. So if it fails, it doesn't respond in time. Okay. Maybe we just report that to the user versus, okay, we've got to actually have a hard, hard deadline by the time we report back. And if we don't get something by that time, we need to know exactly what needs to happen. Right. And the, you know, the interesting thing, you sort of mentioned distributed databases and that the crossover that that has with Erlang. And you, you actually see, you know, the early distributed systems research is about relational databases. And the sort of reason you have such a, a high crossover in Erlang is because of this cultural bias toward working on problems where you have it separated across machines. So you immediately have to be concerned about, you know, well, what happens when this machine disappears or, you know, the network is faulty or, or all manner of monstrous things like that. And we're actually starting to see that sort of filter into the general industry as people move toward microservice architectures. And these are all problems that we really thought about pretty heavily in the 60s when we were developing ARPANET or NTP is this amazing mechanism for synchronizing a false concept of time because there's a vibrating atom somewhere in the world and we're looking at that vibrating atom and then we're distributing that knowledge of that vibrating atom to all these computers that have no ability to communicate with one another and how you actually do that in an era where TCP was too expensive to set up even on a large scale is fascinating. So we're, we've hit the end of day two. Was there anything else that you thought was stand out from your perspective coming through and any other interesting ideas that you were able to go in, kind of have a light bulb or something hit you over the head and kind yeah. of like either that's a brilliant realization or that completely crushed my reality because <laughs> I'm sure, as I'm sure you were talking yeah. for some other people were like, I thought these systems were safe. Was there yeah. anything that kind of said, kind of either gave you a nice epiphany or just shattered down one part of your little world. Yeah, geez, I, I hope I didn't uh I hope I didn't break anyone's heart. But yeah, you're you're right. I guess one of the main theses of the the talk is, you know, even if you have all of these great tools for verifying your system, you're gonna link it into something that's noisy and dangerous. There was a really wonderful talk whose name I have forgotten by a speaker whose name I have forgotten, because I'm terrible at remembering things, about sort of how mathematics and programming are blurry how they sort of link together and you know coming from a mathematics background into computer science that 
that resonated very well, especially in this idea that mathematicians are, are sort of in love with creating a certain class of mathematician or in love with creating an abstraction that trivializes all existing problems. And, you know, you, you sort of build new problems with that glorious abstraction, but your goal was to trivialize the things that existed. And that you, you see not infrequently in software engineering, where, you know, there's no downside to this new thing that I've made that solves all problems, except there is a downside because everything has some sort of fault intrinsic to itself. Sounds good. So is there anything else you want to let people know about? Advertise or let people know? Study NTP. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a really, it's one of those things where if you fully comprehend how NTP works. And NTP being? The network time protocol. If you fully under, understand. That's what I, that's what I thought. I yeah, wanted to sorry, clarify for, sorry. for myself and anybody listening. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a handful of RFCs. They grow in complexity and I recommend reading from start to finish and comprehending each one as you go along. And there will be parts where you, you want to build a reference implementation and then stop because you don't want to spend two years in it. But you can see this gradual shift in an understanding how to deal with the distributed world. You know, the first RFC for NTP version one or NTP version one makes these assumptions that, you know, we know to be false, that you can send UDP traffic relatively reliably. And then that gets addressed in version two and then faults in version two get addressed in version three. And if you sort of read with this idea in mind of examining the, the trend of research, you can see you can see that reflected in NTP. And it's one of the few things that's so long lived and written by experts. You know, there, there are protocols that exist in the world that are not written by people who are experts at designing protocols. But NTP is one of them. It's this golden standard of how you would design a protocol and the distillation of distributed systems research into a concrete thing that everybody uses. Sounds like a great series of references, including the ones in your presentation, which oh, yeah. I'm sure will be online and we can reference as well. Is there any place that people, the best place for people to follow you if they're going to follow and find out more of your interest, if this fault tolerant stuff is piqued your interest or anything else that's going on that you tend to... Yeah, I'm B.L. Troutwine, T-R-O-U-T-W-I-N-E, on Twitter. I occasionally tweet about my practical research and also photography and films and things like that. And my website is troutwine.us. And I post more serious things there, I suppose. Okay. Well, it was great actually meeting you in person. I kind of yeah. followed you on Twitter and was familiar with you, but haven't actually met you. Yeah, yet. same. It's been wonderful to meet you. It's been great meeting you, and uh, I'll catch you tomorrow and at the last little bit of the conference and Absolutely. the rest of the day. So. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Yeah. I'm here with Pavel Schultz after the conference at the Unconference, and do you want to give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Oh, yeah, sure. So I came from Poland, so... <laughs> A long travel here, 24 hours, 5 hours flight, so it was really weird. And I thought after, you know, first day, my body will be accustomed to, you know, time changes and everything, but it didn't happen, and the alcoholism wasn't helping as well. So <laughs> yesterday at, like, 1 a.m., I completely lost track of time and space, like, where am I? <laughs> but, you know, really awesome conference, and I'm, I'm happy I'm here. What's your background in? Also, I was... Uh, I had like eight years of Java development experience, but like one last year I switched to Scala. And then, you know, you can, if you go to Scala, there's like two kinds of people who are, you know, doing Scala. First, first type of people are who are, you know, happy. They are no longer doing Java development. And the other people are, you know, sort of like really angry. They're still not using Haskell on a daily basis. So I'm somewhere, someplace in the middle. So I've been doing like Scala development and Java style. 
but then some people introduced me to functional programming and to Haskell concept and stuff like that. And I try to, you know, right now use Scala scene and all that stuff and do some as much as functional programming as possible. Okay. And you gave a talk. Do you want to let everybody know a little bit about your talk? Oh, yeah. So the talk was called Monads Asking the Right Question. So there's this monads, it's a really concept that everybody tried to comprehend and for some reason it's really hard to understand. And I believe it, it's really not that hard. Depend on your background, you either go with the mathematical background. If you have, don't have that, you can actually think about monads as a, as a pattern that happens every time. And so I was trying to show, instead of, you know, explaining at the very beginnings what are the laws of monads and stuff like that, I wanted to show that there are different patterns that we as programmers do during our development and somebody, you know, saw that pattern, it's happening all and all and over again and just named it, made, made some laws to it and it worked. So I don't know if I achieved my goal, but I've seen some happy faces after my talk. So, so maybe this concept of monads, somebody understood this. There's this, once I heard somebody was doing a talk about monads and he said that with monads, they come with a curse. And the curse is that once you understand what monads are, you completely lose ability to explain it to other people. So I was hoping to break that curse. I don't know if I manage, but you know, we will see. What will people think about my talk? I, I hope somebody will maybe write something. So I'm waiting for the opinions from the attendees of this conference. So I guess anybody here who's listening that also was, was at Lambda.com, yeah, yeah, feel yeah. free to send, uh, send exactly. back feedback. Especially if, if you think that the presentation was not that good, I would really like to hear your opinions. But awesome if you think you, you enjoyed it. I would be awesome as well. And then was there anything else that you, so we've been two days. Maybe, were you at the script thing before as well? No, no, no. Okay. I, so, I flew here like on Friday late at night. So, and given the time difference and I was really, really tired after the flight. So. I didn't have a chance to, to go to the Periscope conference. But I can tell you what I really like about this conference. There are two really cool things about it. And the first one is like, if you go to conference in Europe, like in Poland, but in other, in other countries as well, I don't think people are that much open as they are here. What really struck me was that the very first day, people like really strangers standing in a line for dinner or something. Like one stranger turning to the other one and they just start talking to each other. That's, that's really awesome. And in, in Europe, especially in Poland, we need boost for that, <laughs> right? But, I mean, it is happening, but it isn't happening that fast. What I saw, like, the very first day normally happens on the second day or, or the third day or, or so. So I really enjoy that, like, openness and all different kinds of people I've met here. It was really awesome. And the other thing was that I really like about this conference is that the people attending this conference came from different backgrounds and like not only languages but the stuff that they do. There were some people I've met like yesterday doing some software development on the machines with limited memory and you know well the different kinds of discussions I had at this conference was amazing. I seriously learned a lot and even if I understood like some on some talks like on advanced track I maybe understood like 20% of what the guys were saying still it was like you know, putting me on the next level. So, really cool. Were there any talks or topics or anything that stood out and kind of gave you new insights or made you want to go back and dig into something else some more? Well, definitely, definitely. I, I know right now I will to learn a lot more about Haskell and the type system. But what I really would like to do, like the next step would be to write some closure code because I've talked with some people here so who are using closure. I've seen some code examples and, and I really enjoy the language. 
So I, I before this conference, I knew some like how the language looks like and I knew some basics, but they've opened my mind to different stuff and do a new composure. So I'm at least hoping to extend that in on coming months. Possibly because you're already on the JVM using Scala, yeah, so you're like, yeah, maybe I can make make the next step into closure. Yeah, so so I have uh, I have some friends who are like experienced Scala developers. They they started using Scala like seven years ago, five years ago. So Scala like has like what ten years, eleven years. It's like really really young language, and they've been using it for five years or so. And they were saying that for closure, like when they started using Scala five years ago. It was still something new, right? And right now they see the same patterns happening for closure that were happening five years ago for Scala. They see that, you know, the same thing happening. Companies are really, really getting familiar with the language. So, for example, in London right now, if you browser through the jobs on, on in London, you might find, for example, jobs that are being paid like the top-notch uh, salary, and they are looking for not for closure developers. They're just looking for developers who'd like to learn closure. So they give you like top salary for the day job and they want to teach you the language. So, so that's something you know to consider, right? Because something happening around this language. People are interested. So is there anything else you want to mention to people about this conference or anything else that been on your mind that you want to let people know about? So I think whatever language that you use and whatever paradigm that you use, I would definitely recommend coming to this conference because you will meet people with different backgrounds and different knowledge, different level of, you know, understanding how programming language works. And you are exposed to different things. You are exposed to different ways of programming because there are people who will, well, are not familiar with your way of doing code, but they will give you like their background. And it's really something worth doing. So I recommend definitely coming next year. I will definitely come here as well. Yeah, I was pretty impressed because I've seen some pretty advanced people and pretty advanced topics, discussing pretty advanced topics that are way, way over my head. And then I've yeah. also seen some people who are just kind of dipping their toes in and just starting out, like, from a fresh slate and, like, I really don't know what functional programming is, but yeah, from, I was able to come here and learn. Yeah, but from my experience, like, even if you new to functional programming concept and you go to advanced track, that's, you know, that's something that I have. It's my experience. Yeah. And if, even if I understand twenty percent of what they are saying, it stays in my mind. I make some notes, and this is something that will later on be worth knowing. So even if you don't get everything, this will help you out eventually somewhere in the future. Sounds great. Is there any place that people can find you if they want to follow you and talk okay, some more? Yeah. So my Twitter account is Rabbit on Web, and the same name for my blog RabbitOnWeb.com. Okay. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank Thanks you for having me. Thank you. I'm here with Richard Feldman, and he gave a talk the other day about Elm, and we're at the unconference part, and he's about to be giving another talk, so do you want to give people a little bit of background about yourself, and then a little bit about what you're going to, what you've talked about or what you're going to be talking about with Elm? Sure. Yeah, so I, I've been a sort of a lifelong programmer. Uh, I started off with Java and C++ and BASIC and stuff like that when I was nine years old, and eventually kind of found my niche in web front-end development. I love making user interfaces for people and I love the web as a platform. So what drew me to functional programming is basically the challenges of building with JavaScript and having things fall apart all the time. So I had a lot of bugs and in various applications that I've made over the years. And yesterday my talk was about how sort of I, I took this journey from making an application that was very important to me that I was using for myself called DreamWriter, which is open source on GitHub if people want to check it out. But basically just that I ended up with 
these bugs that I couldn't resolve because my application's complexity had gotten out of control. And in the search for finding ways to simplify things, I ended up at functional programming, and specifically, I ended up at Elm. So the talk was sort of about why I chose Elm, how I ended up there, and sort of uh, the, the, the benefits that I found. And now Elm has become my favorite programming language, and I'm uh, very happy to be using it uh, more and more. So I came in about halfway through it, and I was caught some other stuff, and then I managed to sneak in to at least be able to take a peek. But you also had an interesting transition to Elm, where... You came in through CoffeeScript, and that helped ease the transition. Do you want to kind of give a little bit more info about that transition and how you found the transition to CoffeeScript from JavaScript and then making that all the way to Elm? Sure. Yeah, so going from JavaScript to CoffeeScript is pretty trivial. I mean, the, the learning curve is, is like half an hour to an hour, honestly, to, to become productive in CoffeeScript. But one of the things that I did find was that once I'd sort of embraced this notion of stateless functions or aka pure functions or referentially transparent functions being sort of one of the fundamental keys to writing simpler programs because they mean you can break things down and consider them in isolation without having to deal with this whole web of complexity that you get from lots of side effects. Once I sort of embraced that, I started writing more and more of my CoffeeScript code using those types of functions wherever possible. And that definitely did ease the transition because Elm is purely functional. There's, that's all there is. You, you don't have side effects anywhere. And so the fact that I already had so many of my functions rewritten in this style meant that in a lot of cases, I could just do a sort of a one-to-one -one translation rather than having to simultaneously go from the imperative paradigm to the purely functional paradigm and while simultaneously changing syntax with different language and so forth. And then the other thing I noticed was there are no callbacks or anything, as you pointed out. You're like, here's a declaration, and it looks like just a type of array or some other data structure. And you're like, where are the callbacks? Well, and you highlighted that everything's a signal, and then Elm interprets those signals on your behalf in that case. Yeah. So the way Elm handles signals is kind of an involved discussion. It's sort of a more advanced concept, actually. I didn't to be honest, fully understand them when I started using Elm. Because in a lot of cases, the way you end up using them in practice is just that you sort of have some wiring that you hook up once, and then you sort of ignore it for a while. Or maybe you just sort of introduce new signals and just sort of follow what you've done with other signals in the past or what you've seen other people do with them in order to get the functionality that you want. But it turns out that you actually don't typically need a sort of deeper understanding of them to get things done. That can sort of come later as interest level demands. But uh, to answer the question, yeah, basically Elm handles effects um, using, or one of the ways that it, it handles effects um, is using this concept of signals. So signal being a value that changes over time, could be any number of different values, but typically the way that you end up using them, and certainly the way that I was using them in this talk was to translate user inputs into sort of actions. An action is just a, a data representation of the update you want to make to your model. And then those actions go through the signal, and so what Elm does, uh, the Elm runtime does, is it takes those signals and gives you various tools for merging them together and translating them into the user interface that's updating over time, which, of course, is what you need for an interactive application. Elm has been on my radar a little bit, and Evan Zablicki is definitely one person I want to get on the podcast and talk to. So, But that gives some good intro Yes, yeah, to, to what little I've seen of it, I saw you talking. It looked pretty good. Evan's much better at explaining signals than yeah. I am. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you should hit me up about that because I could put you in contact with him. I'm sure he'd be happy to come on. So, is there anything else at the conference that you kind of came away, either shattered your world or blew your mind one way or another with uh, 
Oh man, with what um, you've seen, yeah. <laughs> there were there were a lot of uh, really interesting talks. One of the things that I sort of wanted to do was I wanted to catch up. One of the things I mentioned the, in my Elm talk was that uh, I'd evaluated ClojureScript and PureScript in addition to Elm around the same time that I was looking for something to, to solve my problem. But I haven't really kept up with those. So it was interesting to go to talks on sort of the current state of the art with ClojureScript and Elm and PureScript and Thermite and Halogen and stuff and just sort of see the different directions that all three of those, ClojureScript, PureScript, and Elm have gone. And fortunately, I, I'm, I'm happy with the choice I made, but there's definitely, it's really exciting to see that there are so many different functional languages that compile to the browser and are, are viable now, because I remember several years ago, that was just a pipe dream. It was just, I mean, you, you didn't even have one that was, you know, any kind of reasonable option for doing functional programming in the browser. And now you have several, and that's fantastic. It's a great sign of things to come, I hope. Sounds great. Well, you're about to go give your unconference workshop, presentation yeah. workshop, so let me get back to it. Yeah. Thanks for your time. All right, thanks. I'm here with Isalu Greenberg. Hi. And she gave a talk yesterday about her loom. So do you want to give a little bit of background about yourself? And then we can go into a little bit of background about what your talk is about. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I work at Google on a distributed build system. So in my day job, I write mostly C++. And Clojure is my hobby, my side project. So I got into Clojure maybe two years ago. Started out with full Clojure exercises to just get a hang of the language and get a feel for it. And then I got involved with Loom. Uh, which is what I talked about yesterday. So what was the draw for Clojure coming from C++? Oh, so actually before that I was writing Java. So my sw my transition was from Java and then, you know, venturing into the Clojure and getting to learn. I was pretty familiar with JVM at that point, so I wanted to try out yet a different language with different philosophy okay. and different approaches. And so then you got into Loom, and uh -huh. you've got a interesting background compared to a lot of developers where you've got some background in art as well, right? Yes, yes, yeah. I do uh, art in my spare time. I, I do all painting now where um, like I try to go like about once a week and I'm currently working on a big painting. It, it's like two by two feet painting, so it's taking time. It's taking time to actually finish it. Because if I remember right, because you were on the Cognicast for mm -hmm. anybody else who wants to go listen to that episode. Mm -hmm. You talked about how you kind of take a whole bunch of different style of projects on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to venture in different uh, aspects of art and technology. So, you know, I find that fascinating. That's how I take a break from whatever I was doing previously. So, And Loom is one of those ventures into it, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm the maintainer contributor to Loom. It's a graph algorithms and visualization library. So if you have a graph, Loom provides an API to represent that, and then you're able to run graph algorithms on it. But there is also ability to not port your graph to Loom and run some graph algorithms on your graph, and you're able to visualize it using Graphviz. Okay. What else? So what were some of the highlights of your talk that you want to, like, that would tease people, so these recordings should be coming out on video mm -hmm. through Confreaks at some point in the future, but... Yes. You want to give a little pitch for your some high points to try and intrigue people to go back and check it out on Confreaks when it gets released? Yeah, definitely. So my talk focused on bridging the gap between object-oriented programming and how we represent graphs in object-oriented world and how we represent graphs in the functional programming world. And specifically, I focused on the examples from Loom library, read and enclosure. So I gave a uh, talk on Loom last year at Clojure West. And there I focused on the internals of Loom, how, like Loom's philosophy of how graphs should be represented 
in this talk I focused if you're newer to functional programming then you may find it most beneficial in that I compared side by side how to implement graph algorithms when they're described in a procedural object-oriented way how to translate that into functional programming way of representing your graphs and I talked a little bit about what Loom does itself, but also mostly focused on different ways. How is it different to represent graphs in functional programming compared to object-oriented? So if you're newer to functional programming, newer to Clojure, I think you will find it very helpful, hopefully. Okay. And what else here have you... I've seen you around in a couple of talks, uh-huh. and I wound up sitting right behind you, not realizing it was you at a talk. Uh-huh. What were some of the other talks that kind of blew you away or were impressed with or have introduced some ideas to i got to go look into this some more. There's some interesting stuff here. Yeah, so I liked a lot of the talks. Some of the ones that I can't wait to just get back and start you know, trying them out are the Emily language that was presented yesterday. It seems really cool where the language treats everything as a function. So even object creation, the author doesn't really make distinction between creating objects and creating functions because creating objects is just another way of calling the function to set some key and value. And uh, another one is Rust. Like I've been hearing about Rust. Last Friday, it hit the 1.0 version. So I'm very excited to try it out. A lot of the ideas in Rust, like related to lifetimes, are very similar to what I do at work with smart pointers in C++. Yeah. So like that kind of idea is like, you know, very dear to my heart. And like, I work, I work with that concept for a while. And I'm looking forward to trying it out in a new language. And Rust just seems like a very cool system language. So. And then there was another uh, pretty inspirational talk on um, virtual file systems. Okay. Um, I remember seeing the keynote for that. Yes. But I didn't actually get to make it to the talk. So was, that right. one was pretty good as well? Yeah, yeah. It was great. Yeah. It was like, you know, 60-minute extension to the keynote. So uh, that was interesting in that basically the speaker encouraged uh, to think more about logical views, creating logical views of the data. So instead of, you know, representing, like sticking to represent a particular representation of your data, figuring out a way to construct a projection such that you can take a view of the data in a certain way that is necessary for you, which is actually very similar to how Loom treats graphs, where it's up to you as a graph offer to store graphs in your way, whether it's in a graph database or somewhere else, just in a file, you know, in a, a map, but then you would just provide a mapping from the way you decided to store to how Loom would like to understand your graphs, so you provide implementations for the graph API functions. So that kind of approach resonated with me in the virtual file system talk as well. So. Good. Is there any other closure stuff that, because since you're doing the closure and moving uh-huh. the closure, I know there are a couple of different closure related talks like Ohm, or, and I think there was at least one other list flavor, which was list flavored Erlang by Zichon. Was there any of that right. kind of stuff that kind of brought more inspiration to the closure that you do? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, the, the list flavor Erlang sounds really, really cool. I don't, haven't written Erlang. I've read some code. So it was really interesting to see Erlang now represented in a list form. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I tried to attend other talks in other programming languages yeah. to like, you know, get a more exposure to that because I'm less familiar with, you know, Haskell yeah. and other programming languages. So, uh, yeah. So there were a lot of really fantastic talks in LambdaCon. What do you use for your visualization? You mentioned the uh, GraphViz. GraphViz, yes. Is that, is that all you use, or do you do any other stuff around GraphViz to make it pretty? So by default, it use, Loom uses GraphViz, and by default, it uses specifically the, the dot uh, algorithm for layout, but there have been some suggestions to use Gephi, which I heard is much better, and like people who had problems where they needed some graph representation, I found Gephi very helpful. 
So you're kind of just calling out to that. You're not actually building stuff around that. Thing? Right. Okay. No, yeah. But like if there is a contributor that is interested in providing a way to have loom graphs exported and viewed in Gephi, I'm very open okay. to those contributions. Okay. Yes. And you know, it was um, more for historical reasons that we use Graphis. Like when I came to the project, Loom was using Graphis, which I think is, you know, fantastic and and is useful in like most practical considerations. Yeah. But if there are any other representations that people are interested in providing to Loom, integrating with Loom, I'm more than open to contributions. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> and I'll let you get back to the rest of the unconference and go see what else you can pick up and learn. But thank you very much for your time. And it was a pleasure thank meeting you. you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.